ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning and welcome to AM. It's Tuesday the 16th of January. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. The US military says a missile fired by Iranian-backed Houthi militants has struck an American-owned cargo ship off the coast of Yemen. It comes just days after US and British forces carried out air and sea strikes on the rebels who'd been targeting the Red Sea's vital shipping lanes. And as Gavin Coote reports, the UK's Prime Minister says he won't hesitate to take further action. As UK Parliament was debating Britain's role in stopping Houthi attacks on commercial shipping vessels in the Red Sea... Labor MP Stella Creasy informed the House of Commons of another strike. We have had confirmation that today another cargo ship, a US cargo ship, has been struck by a ballistic missile. There have been explosions at the Yemeni port of Hodideh. The Iran-backed Houthi militia has claimed responsibility for the strike on the US-owned vessel that was carrying steel products. The US military command for the Middle East says the ship has reported no injuries or significant damage. The US and the UK, with support of countries including Australia, led a series of strikes on Houthi targets in Yemen over the weekend. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak now faces questions about what to do next. The Defence Secretary told the media this morning that this government was prepared to take the decisions that need to be taken if the attacks continue. Given this news that the attacks have continued, can the Prime Minister set out for us what those decisions are and how he intends to involve Parliament in that process? It wouldn't be right to speculate on future action, but what I can say is our strikes were intended to degrade the Houthi capability, and as I said, they did, initial assessments show, effectively destroy 13 targets at two sites, including (laughs) drones, an airfield and a cruise missile launcher. The Houthis have previously insisted they'll only target Israeli ships or those en route to Israel. And while the UK opposition says it supported last week's strikes on Houthi targets, its leader, Sir Keir Starmer, says any further action against the militant group needs close scrutiny. Because while we back the action taken last week, these strikes still do bring risk. We must avoid escalation across the Middle East. Major General Jonathan Shaw is a former British Army officer and security expert. He's told the BBC while the US and UK-led strikes were necessary, stopping them entirely will be difficult. It's very easy to start a military campaign. It's very hard to stop it. So my concern is that, uh, yes, you can come up with all kinds of justifications of why this attack was necessary, but this is not going to play out uh, smoothly or easily. While he's certain neither Iran nor America want to escalate tensions, the role of the Houthis in the conflict makes it more complicated. Once you get the small players involved, who knows what's going to happen? And events sometimes have a way of running away with them. And so the potential for this to to escalate uh, outside any of the big players' control is huge and indeed uh, has gone up considerably. Former British Army officer and security expert Jonathan Shaw ending Gavin Coote's report. As the conflict between Israel and Hamas continues in Gaza, Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong has arrived in Jordan as part of her week-long trip to the Middle East. She'll also visit Israel and the West Bank. However, her itinerary has drawn criticism, as Oliver Gordon reports. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese set the terms for his Foreign Minister's trip to the Middle East before her departure. This visit is about us being able to express uh, our voice and for 
uh, Penny Wong to see firsthand and to have those discussions uh, face-to-face. But an omission from the travel itinerary has some groups concerned. Penny Wong will not travel to southern Israel to see the places Hamas committed the October 7 attacks. Instead, she says she'll connect with people impacted. Uh, I will be meeting uh, with survivors of that attack, uh, as well as families of hostages. The decision has drawn the criticism of the federal opposition and the co-chief executive officer of the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, Alex Rivchin. I think it's lamentable that the Foreign Minister isn't going there. Prior to Minister Wong's departure, Labor backbencher Julian Hill proclaimed Australians should be banned from being able to fund illegal Israeli settlements. This development, coupled with the Australian government's unwillingness to publicly back Israel against South Africa's charges of genocide, has Rivchin concerned about a softening of support for Israel within the Labor Party. Certainly we expect the government to do better on that. And equally this talk about settler violence I think is a distraction. President of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, Nasser Mashni, has a different view. He's pleased southern Israel isn't on Minister Wong's itinerary. I think that it's a significant gesture in uplifting the Palestinian narrative. The foreign minister will also visit the occupied Palestinian territories and meet with communities affected by Israeli settler violence. Nasamashni would like her to visit Gaza too, unlikely a prospect as that is. As it's still a conflict zone uh, under intense Israeli bombardment, but the appropriate thing to do is for not just Penny Wong but all Western governments to go into Gaza to see what the diplomatic impunity they've given Israel has wrought. So how significant is Senator Wong's decision to steer clear of southern Israel? Independent Middle East expert Roger Shanahan. Not all senior government figures from other countries have visited the sites. I think uh, due respect to the uh, Australian Council, I think that uh, criticism is uh, overblown. He sees Julian Hill's calls for greater oversight on the eve of the foreign minister's trip as more noteworthy. He's obviously expressing uh, one of the views held in the Labor Party, making sure that it uh, gets some traction. Penny Wong will also meet with counterparts in Jordan and the United Arab Emirates during the week-long visit. Oliver Gordon reporting. After years of speculation and manoeuvring over who'll face Democrat Joe Biden at November's US presidential election, Republicans in the state of Iowa are about to vote on who their party's nominee should be. Polling indicates former President Donald Trump is well ahead. North America correspondent Jay McMillan is in Iowa's capital, Des Moines. Well, anticipation is building, Kim. I'm in a ballroom in downtown Des Moines that's been converted into a massive media centre. That is to accommodate the hundreds of national and international news crews that flock here every four years. The caucus process is different to the primaries that most US states use to vote for the presidential nominee. Primaries look a lot more like the elections we're used to in Australia. People arrive at a polling place that would normally be open all day and in many cases they can postal vote instead. Here in Iowa they have to show up in person at 7pm local time to one of hundreds of caucus locations across the state in places like school gyms and town halls. Representatives of the candidates will make speeches urging last-minute support and that is one of the many differences in how they do things here in Iowa. Voters can arrive undecided or have their opinions swayed at the last minute and Donald Trump
Trump has certainly put a lot more effort into that side of his campaign this time around compared to when he ran and came second in Iowa in 2016. So he'll have people called caucus captains appealing for support at these events and he's even released an animated video explaining how to vote. He is predicted to have a, a massive lead ahead of his main rivals, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley, but they are both campaigning right up to the last moments. It's become too personal. It should be about policy. And policy should be about the fact that Americans are tired of working for government. They want government to serve the people again. I know it's really cold, but I'm asking you, go out and participate in the Iowa caucus. You're never going to have an, an opportunity to have your vote make more of an impact than you will tonight. Now, Jade, the Iowa result doesn't always spell success for the rest of the nomination campaign. What happens next? Well, there's been intense focus on Iowa for months, but attention will very quickly shift after today to the next state to vote, and that is New Hampshire next week. This is where Iowa is important. Uh, as you say, the results here don't make a big difference in terms of the number of delegates needed to secure the Republican nomination, but they can fuel momentum for the candidates who do well all result in a lot of pressure being applied to those who don't. So in many ways, Iowa is all about expectations. Donald Trump could win here, but if he doesn't win by as large a margin as has been predicted, then it could call into question the level of enthusiasm that so many have assumed is there. Correspondent Jade McMillan in Iowa. The federal government's flagging it might change how oil and gas companies have to consult with local communities. It comes after gas giant Santos won a federal court challenge lodged by a group of Tiwi Islands elders over a giant underwater pipeline for its Barossa project in the Timor Sea north of Darwin. Here's political reporter Evelyn Manfield. In the Timor Sea north of Darwin, the building of a lengthy gas pipeline can now continue. Santos proposes to take natural gas from under the sea at Barossa and process it into fuels. The pipeline had been paused for months after Tiwi Island's traditional owners took to the federal court, arguing Santos didn't properly assess if the pipeline would damage underwater cultural heritage sites and sacred dreaming places. But the court ruled yesterday the evidence presented established nothing more than a negligible chance there may be objects of archaeological value where the pipeline will go. In a statement, plaintiff and traditional owner Simon Mankara said... This outcome is very disappointing. We brought this case to protect our sea country. I'm a true believer for my country. We're hurting and need some time to think. The court's decision means construction on the pipeline can continue, which will enable gas to be sent onshore to Darwin. But it's not expected much if any of the gas will be used locally. Instead, it'll be exported to Japan and South Korea. Energy and climate change expert at the Grattan Institute, Alison Reeve, says foreign investors from these countries have underwritten the project. There isn't actually a pathway for this, or not an easy pathway for this gas to get into the domestic market because the pipeline will take it to Darwin. And Darwin isn't really linked to the rest of the country. Gas prices spiked last year and there are always fears it will happen again. So will this new gas have any impact on the local market? It's not going to make gas prices cheaper on the East Coast, which is where a lot of gas users are struggling. 
so the benefits to Australia are really just limited to the shareholders of Santos and a little bit of tax. Federal Resources Minister Madeleine King says Australia should be proud that it can help to power cities like Tokyo and Osaka that might otherwise rely on coal. But she points out the government wasn't party to the court proceedings. From my perspective, I am, I'm glad it's concluded in as much as it provides some clarity around that project. Are you pleased that Santos can continue building this pipeline? Oh, look, it's um, um, neither one way or the other. On that. One thing the minister does want to see happen, though, is change in the way companies consult with local communities. Well, I think it is really important that people can uh, take these matters for administrative review. Equally, there is an obligation on government when this happens over and over and over again to make sure we, we clarify regulations so that people don't have to go to court to, to make sure consultation happens properly. Even though Santos has cleared this latest hurdle, the Grattan Institute's Alison Reeve says the project will still face obstacles, including a future dwindling demand for gas globally and rising costs. Evelyn Manfield reporting. Myanmar's military has agreed to a ceasefire with an alliance of armed ethnic minority groups. It comes after months of conflict, which pose the biggest threat to the junta since it seized power in a coup in 2021. Southeast Asia correspondent Lauren Day reports. From a jungle camp in Myanmar's north, Commander Mong Song Ka is preparing his troops for a war he never wanted. I don't truly have a penchant for the life of a soldier. Becoming one is an unfortunate trick of fate in this journey. Once an anti-war poet, he's now on the front lines of a civil conflict that's raged in his country since the military seized power in a coup almost three years ago. Since late October, his Bamar People's Liberation Army has fought alongside a military coalition known as the Three Brotherhood Alliance, which last week announced a ceasefire with the military after a string of major victories. It really does pose a significant challenge to the military's grip on power. Matt Smith works for NGO Fortified Rights, which has been interviewing military defectors since the 2021 coup. To have these insights has been very helpful and I think will be very, very helpful in terms of holding perpetrators of mass atrocity crimes accountable in the future. But many have predicted the demise of Myanmar's military before. And analyst Richard Horsey from Crisis Group says while it's a moment of historic weakness for the junta, it's unlikely to roll over. It's not going to give up easily because this is existential. I mean, if they if they lose, uh, it's a very, very bad uh, situation for them. But what we are seeing is the Myanmar military being forced to make some very difficult, some very painful choices about where it stands and fights and where it just retreats. And if the military was to collapse, what does the future of Myanmar actually look like? No, I think what's important to understand is that if the military and the regime collapsed, that's not the same thing as a unified uh, opposition force winning, right? That's the big challenge of Myanmar. That's the, that, that's the foundational challenge of Myanmar that, that no one has been able to solve. Matt Smith from Fortified Rights says Australia could and should have a key role in bringing Myanmar's military to justice. One thing that Australia could do as a member state of the International Criminal Court is to refer the situation in Myanmar to the prosecutor. 
In a statement, a spokesperson for the Department of Foreign Affairs told AM the Australian government strongly condemns the ongoing repression and violence by the Myanmar regime and supports measures to ensure accountability for international crimes committed in Myanmar. Matt Smith says it's impossible to know which direction the conflict will now take. But if the past is any indication, the future looks bleak for the people caught in the middle of this bloody war. Unfortunately, we are likely to see more casualties, um, more severe human rights violations taking place, unless there can be uh, uh, more attention and more action taken by the international community to support the people of Myanmar. Human rights expert Matt Smith ending that report from Lauren Day. the opportunity to perform in a theatre production or work behind the scenes on one isn't always possible for people with disabilities. But a theatre company in Brisbane is trying to change that. And our reporter, Elizabeth Cramsey, went to take a look. At Queensland's Performing Arts Centre, the cast of Technicolor Rumble are gearing up for their final dress rehearsal. Can we go into Isaac's with the conclusion of my tale? Clark Crystal is the artistic director. I've always been fascinated by the power of theatre and what theatre can provide for people's lives and it drew me into working in an inclusive context. RAD stands for Real and Diverse Theatre. It's an inclusive company for people living with disability. Traditionally in theatre, the cast and crew are built around a show. At RAD, the show is built around the artists. So all of our company members, they're all talented and we celebrate their talent, whether that talent is in through movement, and dance, through music, through text. Uh, we just celebrate their talents and then we build a show that illustrates and celebrates their talents. In this production, Brisbane has been robbed of its colour by a group of evil supervillains and a group of superheroes are called in to get it back. And I just proposed the idea that they could create their own superhero and or alternate their own supervillain. So our company members went off and did some research and they've come up with their own characters, their superheroes or their supervillains. And I'm, I'm Captain Mole, superpowered. I can, I can dig underground really fast. My mutant power is to make suits in different colours and stronger. My name is Filthy Beast. Glitterina. I, I dance like ballerina. The cast of 24 are joined on stage by a group of professional musicians. Clark Crystal says the collaboration benefits everyone involved. And they share their skills to our performers and those professional artists walk away from an experience of, you know, working together with people with a disability and, and that just, just, just makes the world a better place to live in. Dr Zena Burgess is the CEO of the Australian Psychological Society. She says it's important that the arts are accessible to everyone. It helps people process and understand their feelings and emotions and it also improves their ability to communicate these in meaningful ways and that's for everybody but particularly for people or a person with a disability. For actor Daniel Tomlinson, performing on the stage at QPAC is a huge opportunity. It feels very special. It just feels absolutely amazing. All these people watching you and then getting engaged. It's the third time Jared Mellish has performed with the company. It just feels amazing. I like the people, I like the environment. 
I like the sets and the costumes and I, I always find it such, such a joy. As soon as the cast take their final curtain call, preparations will be underway for the next production. Elizabeth Cramsey reporting, and that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers.